Anyone who's a journalist and a truth teller might be an enemy of any number of different people for different reasons. But if that person considers me an enemy, even if I don't consider them an enemy, I still have to love them rather than maybe love my enemy because, you know, that's not my framework. I will love the people who see me as an enemy. I will love them. And part of that love is to interrogate and understand who they are and how they became who they are. At a time when our society can feel more divided than ever, join us as we explore what it means to adapt and evolve together. Welcome to Say More. I'm Tulane Montgomery, CEO of New Profit and your host. There's a term that sort of feels like we've always had it, but it's a fairly recent development. As some of you know in the Say More community, I'm a bit of an etymology geek. I love to understand the history of words and terms and how that impacts our understanding of them today. So, you know, a new term that really started as slang that has become part of our common language is the term fake news, right? I bet many of us can even remember where that term was introduced into our world. And however you feel about the source of introduction, the dynamic of news that one cannot trust to be fact-based or truth-seeking, right? That's something that we can all understand and relate to. There's a whole ecosystem of misinformation, right? There's technology designed to introduce false identities and inaccurate data and manipulated images. It's just really something to consider that when one is tuning into the news, that you can be tuning into mythology, propaganda, and that's hard because what do we do when we need information to make informed decisions and to make choices that make sense, right? So my guest today is Farai Chidea, and she believes that journalism doesn't have to divide us further. It can actually bring us closer. Farai is an award-winning multimedia and data journalist. She's a senior writer at 538, focusing on the demographics of American voters. She also hosts the Our Body Politic podcast, where she reports on how women of color experience political events, and most importantly, how women of color are impacting the issues that affect all of our lives. In our conversation, Farai tells us how data-driven journalism can help make sense of the racism and discrimination that we're seeing play out today. She also tells us what leading with love as a journalist means for her, including how she engages with people with whom she vehemently disagrees. Last but not least, Farai explains how understanding the beliefs of people with whom we disagree can actually help us find ways to collaborate with each other. 
So I'm so happy to uh, see you and to know that you are surrounded by beauty right now. Yes. And so one thing, you know, usually when I do these conversations, Farai, like I need to put a lot of time into helping people get present because they're coming from three meetings and have four after. Um, (laughs) But I feel like you might actually be in the place where you're like, you're right here right now. But one thing that is just a good thing to do is I'd love for you to just as we get started, share with me and the listeners Describe a time you were recently inspired. I find that there's something about starting there that can help our conversations go to some really great places. Yeah. So it's a very easy question for me because I am indeed on vacation in Oak Bluffs, which is a place of historic Black rest and joy. And there's a cottage named Black Joy House (laughs) in case you needed to to have it all spelled out. You know, a lot of people give their houses names and one of them is Black Joy House. Um, But there's this thing called the polar bears, and I've been coming to Martha's Vineyard, I've probably been close to 20 years, if not 20, with different people, different times. And there's this thing I never did until this trip called the polar bears, which is that a lot of the Black folks who were here on the island, you know, were working on vineyards that used to exist. So it was called Martha's Vineyard. And whatever they were doing, they'd have to work all day. So they would go swim early in the morning. And they they formed something called the Polar Bear Club. And it has been around for 77 consecutive years. So there's one group of people who do, you know, an ocean swim in the morning. And then what I've been doing on this trip, I love ocean swimming, um, but I've been doing this. It's like, spirituality meets water aerobics. Like Mm. it is a community gathering. It's usually, you know, at least in the times I've been 30 to 60 people and different women, usually elders lead the exercises and there's singing and there's laughing and jokes. And that's what has me present is like the idea of, you know, wading in the water, Mm. literally. Mm -hmm. Early in the morning, there's a salute to the sun. You have to, at one point, look onto the horizon, salute the sun. And one of the things that they say, there's a couple things they say that that really stick with me. One of them is that they have a, a sort of exit chant that's like, I am the source of my own joy, you know, mm. and that it's like... No, no one else, no thing else. And and people always throw jokes. And so one is like, not even your best lover is the source of your joy. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you are the source of your own joy. Come on, come on. Yes. <laughs> and um, today, the youngest person was less than one year old in his or her mother's arms. And the oldest person was over 80 years old. So that's where I'm deriving my joy from. That's a beautiful story. And I'm also marveling in and inspired by the sort of connectivity of the world. So uh, there's a beautiful sister who I've come to know uh, through a circle of women that spend a lot of their time on the vineyard. She actually lives on island year round. Mm. Her name is Kim Jones. And she talks about being part of the polar bears, this group that you just yes. described. And wow. so I got a text from her just this week about her experience of being part of that community. She is faithful in that community. And it's just so beautiful to notice this beautiful connection. And then mm-hmm. you mentioned Black Joy House. And if it's the same Black Joy House, Alessandra and her wife, Melissa, are really involved in that community, if I'm understanding where it is. And that's another. They're also part of the circle of women who have been just pouring into each other oh, in terms that. of wellness 
and sustainability. And it's quite lovely to hear how mm-hmm. all these good people are engaging in these rituals and practices to connect and restore ourselves. I just love that. That's I'm inspired in hearing that story and in connecting some dots, even in my own life, in my own world that I didn't know were connected. Well, hopefully one summer we get to polar bear together or you get to polar bear on your own. Well, I would love that. I'm, I'm going to need to do that with you because if it's just me, I don't know if I'm getting in that cold water. So I, I think that in partnership. Trust me, there's a lot of ooh, 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 ooh as people get in. Okay, okay. That <laughs> would be then you great. get over it. Okay. No, I would welcome that. I would welcome that. So, you know, I believe, as you know, in a world of abundance and, you know, in, a, in an abundant world, you know, people often say, Make sure you never meet your heroes. You've heard that expression. Mm, Don't meet your heroes. And the premise of that is, you know, that, you know, it's never going to be as good as you think it is. But I live in an abundant world. And in my world, you meet your heroes and they can often become your friends. And I would want to say that this is true for Rye, for you and I. I have been a fan and just a champion of you and your work for years. And, you know, I actually was looking back and preparing for this conversation. I looked back on some of the talks you did five years ago, seven years ago, 10, 12 years ago. And you were talking about being your full self and bringing your full self into your work. You were in the body of a Black race identity woman talking about be all of who you are, the episodic career, reinvention. Mm -hmm. You know, you have been, you know, you invited you know, seven years ago, you were leading conversations on stages with people who were, you know, prominent and powerful, inviting them to take a deep breath and put their hand on their heart and another other hand on their belly before they engaged in the process of thinking and designing. You've been doing this for a long time, sister, long before it was on trend and in times where it was perhaps even unsafe to consider these ideas. There was potentially risk associated with being a a leader and pioneer around these concepts and the spaces in which you operate and navigate it. So I'm so proud of who you are and who you've been and um, so excited to know that I can be in relationship with somebody who was so aligned. You know, what you talk about out in the world is who I've experienced one-to-one and it's just a delight and a gift. So I just want to celebrate you and thank you and say you can meet your heroes and they can become your (laughs) friends. That is so kind of you. And I feel the same way about you. I mean, I've just been loving your flourishing into being the sole leader of New Profit. And it's a big task you've taken on. And and you really have done so much transformative work on thinking through what your portfolio is and how you bring people together in presence. Like when you had that big get together in D.C., Farai is referring to The Well, a gathering hosted by New Profit, the venture philanthropy I lead. The event brings together social entrepreneurs, organizers, philanthropists, and social impact leaders. We all come together to learn from each other, collaborate, and build coalitions for change with the bias for action. We also have a lot of fun. We had dance parties, go-go music, comedy, salsa lessons. It was a good time and a powerful time for good work. It was incredible. Like you had people who were happy to get up and shake their booties and freestyle and and just bring, you know, like authenticity. And authenticity comes in many forms. Like I I met people from all different racial and cultural backgrounds. And one of the things I'm noticing and that I felt this way about your gathering 
was that there are a lot of places that have a lot of the cultural architecture of Blackness Mm. in an inclusive way that other people can engage in. And that's the way I felt about Mm. your new profit conference. It was The Well, right? Yep, The Well. That's what it was called. Yeah, Mm -hmm, I'm always mm -hmm. bad with names. Yeah, and (laughs) The Well really had like this cultural architecture around, you know, very often when people have constructed what they think of as diverse spaces. It's like everything becomes like mashed potatoes because it's like, well, Mm. we can't have it too spicy because these people don't like it too spicy and we can't have it, you know, with cheese because these people don't eat cheese. And it's like, I feel like that's that's the model I want to avoid. I mean, I like mashed potatoes too. I really only eat them like a couple times a year, but... I like them. Mm-hmm. They're they're good utility players on the plate. But I'm <laughs> give me some gumbo. I want yeah, everybody's yeah. everything. Yes, yes, yes. That's and right. I feel like you were able to do that. And that's also what you do with your leadership. But it's very mm-hmm. transformative. And you understand capital, which is a tough one. <laughs> well, I I received that and appreciate it. And it was with great intention. You know, look, we had we didn't play. We had uh yeah. dancing. We had a DJs, go-go bands, salsa dances. I've been thinking about the next mm-hmm. well. And I'm like, oh, we need to get like some Afrobeat dancing tutorials going. Cause you know, Absolutely. like we need to keep just keep expanding it, expanding it. But in a real 100%. way. It's no point in doing it diluted, right? What's the point of diluted diversity? Who needs that? That's not what we are here for. Yeah. So I, I love that. I appreciate that. Exactly. <laughs> so okay, let's get into it. I want to first start by talking a little bit about your journey and your vocation, which is so compelling and so interesting to me, and I think inspiring to the listeners for this conversation. So first, vocation, as I understand it, it is, and I'm going to actually use the definition, right? It's a person's employment or main occupation, especially regarded as particularly worthy and requiring great dedication. Mm, so mm-hmm. with that being the way we're defining vocation, right? Yeah. All right. What is your vacation? Vocation, excuse me. What is your vocation? I am on vacation and still, yep, working my vocation. <laughs> That's yeah. Right. So I was, I don't know if I was called as much as I was drafted. Mm. So my grandmother raised six children, three of them veterans, one of them with severe mental illness, one who was neither a veteran nor severe mental illness is my mom. Mm. And she managed, despite the fact that she grew up poor, to not only raise six kids, but also be a freelance journalist for the Baltimore Afro-American. And she raised all these inquisitive children and dealt with all of the race and gender things in the workplace and was an employment whistleblower at the Social Security Administration. And passed the baton to my mother, who was a journalist, after the Peace Corps, which she did in Morocco. And, you know, unfortunately, her career ended early because, Mm -hmm. you know, Black woman with kids. And then so I feel like I've always wanted to be a novelist. I've published one novel. I've written a second. I'm working on it. And I will Mm. move more into that. But journalism has sometimes felt, it's always felt like a vocation, but sometimes it's felt like, you know, a joyride. And sometimes it's felt like a little bit of a family curse Mm, mm -hmm. where it's like you're carrying a certain amount of weight and people don't necessarily appreciate it. And I don't mean people like you. I mean, the institutions of journalism are Mm. experiencing race and gender manipulation. Mm. I think instead of like, I very rarely use the term racism. It's real, of course. But my grandmother, when she was an employment discrimination whistleblower, Mm. 
blew the whistle on a specific type of discrimination, which still happens today. Mm. So what my grandmother found out at Social Security was that there was an entry-level test for the secretarial pool. Okay. And who could type fast was a big deal back in the day. Yeah. And it still counts, but not as much. Mm-hmm. And so all of the white women were hired, and of course they were all women, all mm. of the white women were hired ahead of any of the black women for the secretarial pool, regardless of their test scores. And my grandmother blew the whistle on this. Wow. You know, fake meritocracy is toxic because people can pretend, well, if there were just more qualified black people, it's like, you know, Baltimore has had brilliant black people since the day it was founded. That's right. And fake meritocracy is a toxin. Mm. So, What I would say is that, you know, I have faced fake meritocracy in my own profession. Mm -hmm. And I, at times, am very grateful for being a journalist, which is my vocation. Mm -hmm. And at times, I feel like it's a little bit of a cross that I bear. Yeah. Because I don't believe that the way that Black women, BIPOC women, and frankly, many men are treated in journalism is humane or has anything to do with meritocracy. There are mm-hmm. a lot of things that are very wrong with the profession, but I love it. And I love being someone who sees the patterns in the world. Yeah. To me, journalism, there are a lot of different aspects of journalism. Mm-hmm. One is the packaging of information, you know, so that. You can do a radio broadcast or write a piece or whatever in a way that people, other people can understand it. And then there's the discovery phase where you're getting the information. And I actually, I get a lot out of producing things, but I get even more from the discovery phase. Like Mm. to have the privilege to, you know, I've been on in high speed, you know, car chases in an LAPD police car. I've been in, you know ride-alongs with the Border Patrol, walking Skid Row, camping with activists at Standing Rock. I mean, I have seen the world in many different ways, Mm -hmm. in a much more up-close way than most people see the world. And that is a great joy and a great privilege. That's right. That's right. It is because, you know, the systems that we live in are not really designed for us to experience each other's realities. Yeah. You know, across identity, across economic reality, across ideology, right? Like there's mm-hmm. so many divisions and those divisions seem to be getting more and more rigid with time. So that is such a privilege, such a gift. And then to have those experiences and to feel responsibility to communicate them in ways that are meaningful and authentic yeah. to others is is powerful. It's powerful. So you talked about this is this powerful, important vocation of journalism. And clearly, there's underrepresentation when you talk about gender, racial identity, you know, perhaps even, you know, geography, right? And so... Definitely geography, for sure. Yeah, right, right. So, so what did it require of you, Farai, to navigate that being, you know, leading, innovating, and driving in a field where you were underrepresented across many dimensions of your identity? Yeah, I mean, I think that I've adapted many ways. And and there was a moment, there's a man who is an incredible retired journalist who was my first mentor. And he really was in, in many ways like a father figure to me as well. But he said something to me that rubbed me the wrong way. And, you know, at the time I was like, is this rubbing me the wrong way? Because I've just got an attitude. But 
let me just say this. I mean, he's mm. an incredible guy, definitely wanted the best for me, but I was talking to him about what do I do next in my career? And he's like, Farah, you've moved around a lot. You know, it makes you look, I don't know what word he used, but sort of like a little dilettante or not serious about, mm. you know, choosing a lane. Uh. But I'm the last woman standing because I moved around. You know, <laughs> I did everything. That's Print, right. television, on air, off air. I learned how to cut video. I learned how to cut audio. I can do show design. I can do futures planning. I am your Swiss Army knife. And Mm. part of the reason I'm a Swiss Army knife is because I would hit a glass ceiling and I'd be like, bye. (laughs) And then I'd go somewhere else. So I've just, you know, it's it's not the easiest path, but like, Mm. you know, and and. I'm also very serious about, like, what does it mean to be in this profession? So yeah, yeah, I sort of go between New York and D.C., mainly in D.C. And in D.C., I have an auxiliary power source. So if the power is ever cut off, I can run a mobile newsroom out of my house. That's right. I'm really serious about my profession, mm-hmm. you know, thinking through all of the aspects of what I do. While Farai is certainly serious about her vocation, she does not play. That doesn't stop her from approaching her work with an admirable amount of love. Talking to her really reminded me of the love ethic, a term coined by a hero of mine, the educator and writer, Bell Hooks. She believed that love isn't just about romance and passion. One can incorporate the ethics of love, things like knowledge, compassion, respect, trust, and care into all spheres of life. Bell Hooks believed that doing this was actually a radical act when so much of what we're taught in this world is about war, conflict, scarcity, to lead with love in a way that is powerful, strong, and precise is a radical endeavor. You know, I'm curious, I think a lot, Farai, about what the role of love is in mm-hmm. the work that I do day to day to supporting entrepreneurs, moving capital. What's the role of love in that? And and, and I take yes. that very seriously. And so I wonder, what's the role of love in the work that you do as a journalist? Yeah, I mean, I think that love, you know, I've said many times to many people, I don't always like everyone, but I love everyone. Mm. And I take that very seriously as it affects my journalism. So I spent a lot of time, for example, getting to know white supremacists, you Mm. know, and I don't like their choices, but I love them as human beings. And I don't, I don't fundamentally disrespect their humanity. I also think humanity is a very big bucket. And I don't really believe in a term like inhumane. Hmm. It's like, yes, actions can be inhumane in a moral sense, but Mm -hmm. if human beings do them, whether it's abuse of animals, abuse of other people, genocide, it is a human trait. It is a humane, (laughs) if you want to, you know, change the intonation. It is it is in human nature. (laughs) So it's not that I lack judgment about people who do terrible things, but I don't put them outside of the human experience. And I think that helps me as a as a journalist. And mm-hmm. part of that is love. I believe that I can love people who I despise morally. Wow. I can love people who I despise morally. Mm-hmm. That's really like that. That struck me. That struck me. That is significant. And is that that sounds so Well, when difficult. you think of, you know, I'm not a big Bible quoter, but like love thine enemy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it means to mm-hmm. me is like mm-hmm. and I don't really consider 
there are people who I know consider me their enemy. You know, anyone who's a journalist and a truth teller might be an enemy of any number of different people for different reasons. Mm-hmm. But if that person considers me an enemy, even if I don't consider them an enemy, I still have to love them. Mm-hmm. I have to love the people rather than maybe love my enemy because, you know, that's not my framework. I will love the people who see me as an enemy. I will love them. And part mm-hmm. of that love is to interrogate and understand who they are and how they became who they are. I don't have to like it. Mm-hmm. I can recognize the danger in it. Yeah. You know, I have very often, you know, spoken tr- truth to power about how the rise of white supremacy was going to move from the margins of society to the center. I've been writing about that for years mm-hmm. and people didn't believe me mm-hmm. until they believed me. Right, right. And, That's right. you know, I, yeah, I had a lot of profound disagreements with people who viewed it as polarizing to talk about this. But I think that it is an act of love to speak the truth, mm-hmm. even when people don't want to hear it. It's really powerful. And what I hear and what you're sharing, which I think is important, is that when we talk about love, I've had all these conversations with, you know, people who are dear friends of mine who are like up for the fight of it all, right? Mm -hmm. Like who are up for mobilizing people, you know, who are up for catalyzing movements, you know, who are interested in fighting against injustice in very thoughtful and strategic ways. And when I talk to some of those folks about love and the love ethic, they presume it is about pacifism Mm, mm -hmm. and they presume it is about turning the other cheek and it is about, you know, let the let the blood of Jesus save you as opposed to taking a set of actions that protect you and yours. Yeah. And that's not what love means to me. And I hear that in no, your comments. Yeah. But can you talk a little bit about like love and action and how they coexist for you? Yeah, I mean, I will throw down about employment discrimination in ways that don't always benefit me. And that's also an act of love in the field. I'm like, I'm not putting up with this. Mm-hmm. I will, you know, document. I will you know, whatever. And at times I have certainly been accused of not being a team player, but I'm like, if you're on team discrimination, Mm. we're not on the same team. So I don't care if we work for the same company. Right. You know, I'm not going to be part of this team. And at times, perhaps, you know, I seem a little inflexible about certain things, but I'm really, part of my love ethic is give people the benefit of the doubt Keep giving them the benefit of the doubt. But if there needs to be accountability, there is a form of love in accountability. Not everyone will be comfortable with it, Mm -hmm. but it is a love for the future. We cannot Mm -hmm. leave the same bankrupt discriminatory systems of fake meritocracy for the next generation, Mm -hmm. or at least we shouldn't feel comfortable about doing that. And so if it comes between me like being someone who has the most friends at an industry cocktail party or me being someone who speaks the truth, I'm going to choose the second. But also, you know, getting back, you know, kind of full circle with the love, Mm. there is a self-love to rest. There is a self-love to not always obsessing about keeping score about justice. You know, at Mm. times you just wade in the water and release yourself to you know, like my grandmother could not imagine my life as it is right now. You know, in many different ways, but she also paved the way for it, you know? That's right. So we have to we have to have this duality of having, I think, a love ethic towards others, which may bring us into some uncomfortable places, mm-hmm. and having a love ethic 
around our own self-care that brings us back into alignment with the softness and, you know, and ease. Farai's love ethic reminded me of a beautiful quote by the writer E.B. White. This one resonates with me a lot. He said, Every morning I awake torn between a desire to save the world and an inclination to savor it. This makes it hard to plan the day, but if we forget to savor the world, what possible reason do we have for saving it? In a way, the savoring must come first. Each day, it's almost like a tension between wanting to save, you know, the world yeah. and savor the world, yes, right? And yes. that we have to make choices where there's some version of balance between the two. So I love what Absolutely. you said. Yeah, yeah. And that the love ethic is also about our relationship to ourself and making space for that. So I love what you're talking about, no pun intended. And I want to move into a little bit more of kind of the cerebral, which is talking about misinformation, mm -hmm. right? We talk a lot and hear a lot these days about the misinformation ecosystem, that we get fed a lot of lies through a lot of different channels than we ever, ever did in our history. And so it presents a real question, I would imagine, for you as a journalist. And I wonder if you could advise me and advise us about what does it look like? What do you recommend for those of us who want to get better at discerning the truth from all the inputs that we receive? Yeah. How do we get better and better and smarter and smarter at discerning what is true? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we just did an interview with Adam Barinsky. Adam Barinsky is a political science professor at MIT. His most recent book is titled Political Rumors, Why We Accept Misinformation and How to Fight It. You can find the link to the book and Farai's podcast episode with him in the show notes. The most compelling part of what he lays out to me is that the people who sway the game are the people who say that they don't know. Because, you know, if you have a, a persistent piece of disinformation, there'll be the people who be like, who are like, that's disinformation or that's wrong. The people who will be like, no, 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 that's true. And then there's all these people who are like, I don't know. And some of them really don't know. Mm -hmm. And some of them are trying to be polite, oh, you know, like, okay. oh, you know, I, you know, this is crazy Uncle Ray Ray with his, you know, conspiracy X. And I'm not going to upset the potato salad. And sometimes, yes, you don't want to be that person at, you know, who's fact checking everyone's yes. conversation at the barbecue. Right. But <laughs> there are times where, you know, like. Honestly, if we had had a situation where people checked their racist, anti-Semitic, mm. misogynist relatives on a regular basis, we wouldn't have this culture. Mm. We have normed ourselves into a place where people put up with speech. Yeah. And I, you know, all of which is to say there are a very large set of people who just say that they don't know whether things are true. And those are the people, as much as anyone, mm. Berinsky argues, that really change the game. Because if no one has to know anything, then how can you ever agree to anything? And I wow. think that what the most important thing is to make knowledge a part of your life. You know, it's not as popular as it used to be to read the newspaper. It's not as popular as it used to be to watch the evening news. Hmm. Do something, people. There's a lot of short <laughs> newsletters where you can get a whole bunch of information very quickly. Don't be one of those I don't knows because you are dragging the human race down. <laughs> 
I mean, it's okay to not know what you don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, let me just take it all the way there. It's like when they, they say bad for the race, I'm bad for the human race. Yeah. <laughs> so try not to act like an I don't know when you actually know. Yeah. Mm. And try not to be an I don't know. Try to know things. That is actually the simplest way to put it, mm. you know, is be curious, be inquisitive. I know you also have some really strong perspectives and questions around data and the role of data in our lives. And yes. so, you know, I'm really proud, Farai, that you are one of New Profit's Proximity Fellows in recognition of the work that you're doing, the pioneering work you're doing around data and community. For context for our listeners, New Profit's Proximity Fellows are people who have breakthrough ideas that can change the game when it comes to social impact, economic mobility, and opportunity. Farai was recognized as a proximity fellow for her work developing living data. We're just about to do our first survey, but what we're going to do is we're just launching living data, which is a part of our body politic, and then we'll spin off separately. But for the whole election cycle that we're entering, we're going to have a tracking poll plus an additional deep dive into different topics. And the whole point here is to really map out the the intersection between mental health, physical health, and civic health. Mm. And to find ways for us to co-create a world we want to live in. And so our initial survey, which we're just about to put out in the field, really, it asked people to choose from a wide variety of descriptions and self-describe who they are politically. You know, it has... Among the things on the list are conservative, liberal, progressive, radical, Antifa, MAGA, you know, like we have all these things, not all of which are parallel, but like mm -hmm. a whole like, you know, buffet line of descriptors. Mm -hmm. Describe yourself. Describe what qualities from that list or descriptors you would want in a good leader for America, which ones would make for the worst leader. And then we start asking people who they would collaborate with, you know, people who are not the same as them. How would they collaborate across these lines of self-identity? Because that's where we are and where we need to go. Mm -hmm. And so we want to do things that really get to the psychographics of America. Hey, Seymour family, I had to stop for a moment and look this up. By psychographics, Farai means studying and measuring a community based on their beliefs. Psychographic would be, do you think America's best years are behind us or ahead of us? And when you look at that as a common question that pops up in different ways, you saw that the MAGA crowd thought that the America of the past was apex mm -hmm. and people of color and more centrist and, and liberal whites saw the future as promising. And even today, with mm. all of the madness around race and banning of books and whatever, Black people and people of color are much more optimistic than white Americans. Yeah. And that's an important psychographic question, because regardless of whether or not you think that is logical, when the wealth disparities between Black Americans and white Americans are 10x, and you could be like, why, you know, what do white people have to be upset about? It's like, it's important to understand that white Americans believe the best years of the country are behind us, many of them, mm -hmm. who are dissatisfied and causing insurrections and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so what can you, how do you address a psychographic of people right. who 
have a certain fatalism about society. You can't ignore it. I mean, you can ignore it, Mm -hmm. but that's kind of dumb, you know? And so to begin to understand psychographics also means you can understand people like my relatives who are Black military Catholics and evangelicals who are hardcore social conservatives, Mm -hmm. but who don't vote with the current GOP because of race. So to understand the mix of psychographics and demographics, I think, is critical. And that's really what we're setting out to do. That is really profound and exciting. And I'm excited to amplify your learnings as you progress, because it is clear that we do not understand each other, that we are learning about each other from biased, narrow sources. And it is only accelerating the pace at which we grow farther, further apart. Right. And so like this work you're doing around psychographics is actually essential. It's a critical way to build awareness so that there can be bridging where necessary, co-design where necessary and, you know, whatever else we need to do. Right. It's so it's so significant. It's part of why I'm so excited to be. It's really important. Yeah, it's really important. And, and, And I have a lot of friends. Thank goodness. I have a lot of friends who are very different from me mm-hmm. in various ways. And one of them really helped school me on um, essentially the politics of the Rust Belt, you know, after NAFTA mm-hmm. and the prequel to today's politics. Okay. And so I think that also psychographics is a way for people who are not as interested in narrative storytelling, which I love. Mm-hmm. Psychographics are a way of bringing a qualitative lens to quantitative information. So you can quantify people's feelings, desires, hopes, fears. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. That's a, that's And there's an integration there because so often we view knowledge and information through a binary lens. It's either qualitative or quantitative. Neither the twain shall meet. There's a value hierarchy imposed yeah. between the two. So the integration of the two is profound. Now, I want to go back to something that you said earlier and hear a little bit more about our body politic as a way to to get at this. You know, mm-hmm. you talked about how on our body politic, your podcast, that you all talk about hard, complex issues and topics with the foundation of joy. And I want to just hear a little bit more about the why behind that choice, because, you know, the story that I still hear to this day is that in journalism and media generally, if it bleeds, it leads. Now, that's a really OG and old school way to say it. People say it differently now, Mm -hmm. but the principle is the same. It's it's true, though. I I would would say if it bleeds or twerks, it leads seems to be the theme of today. You know, like there's a lot lot (laughs) going on with that. But um, what would you say? Like, why did you make that choice for Our Body Politic? And talk a little bit more about that show. Yeah, I mean, with Our Body Politic, I started it right before the 2020 election. I'd hoped to start it earlier in the year, but we started it in September because I knew that it was going to be a tight election and I wanted women of color to have an outlet that could really provide complex political news, factually based in a way that was culturally competent. And we have really grown in terms of our audience, but also one thing that we have remained constant on is covering serious issues, but not doing it in a way that is just all fatalistic and woe is me. And it gets to basically the construction of the human brain. The limbic system is your panic button. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like it's some people call it the reptile brain. And it's when you're triggered by anything like a car backfiring or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like your limbic system is like, I'm here and you should be afraid and it's time to fight, flee, 
freeze, appease, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And we want to get beyond that. You know, we want to get into a place because that's really what so much of the if it bleeds, it leads news is. It's like limbic system news. It's like, uh, hey, we're going to sit here and agitate you. <laughs> and you're going to be like all agitated, you know, yeah. like because here's another shooting and here's a blue light and a siren and, you know, blood on a pavement or whatever, yeah, you know, yeah. car chase. We assume that you have seen people you know, in distress, Mm -hmm. in various news outlets. And you come to us to talk about what do we do? Like, what do we do with being human today? Mm -hmm. How do we collaborate to co-create a world that we want to live in? What are the things blocking us from achieving this? When is a struggle an intergenerational struggle? So maybe you don't have to, you know, stay awake all night like worrying about fixing something because it's not going to be fixed for many generations. But mm-hmm. how do you do your part, right. including taking care of yourself? So that resonates so much with me, right? Uh, when I hear you talk about the intent yeah. and, and culture of our body politic, and I'm always in conversations with people that are like, I've have to take a you know news fast, you know, or have a diet from the news because yeah. I can feel that I'm Which being. Which I actually respect. Yeah, yeah, but yet. Why is it? I respect the news fast, but uh, yeah, yeah. But you know that ultimately we do need to have some relationship with understanding what's happening around us. So, well, I think that most when most people talk about a news fast, they're talking about the kind of news that activates their limbic system. Yes, and I would hope that the kind of news that we do is not pushing those same buttons because we're not out to make people afraid. We we assume that every smart person yeah. will be afraid of certain things that are happening, like the climate crisis or the attacks on, you know, voting rights. Like we assume that you already are afraid. We're here to tell you how to deal with the fear. Next, I wanted to give all of you, our Say More community, the opportunity to ask your questions to Farai. If you'd like to contribute with questions for future Say More episodes, follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. And there you'll get a chance to be in conversation with upcoming guests. So first question comes from Michelle uh, at Michelle Comedy on IG. Goes by the tag, the Indie Mom of Comedy. She is also a Baltimore, born and raised in Baltimore, a fellow soror of mine. Yep. And so her question for you is, how did your childhood in and time growing up in Baltimore City prepare you for becoming the thought leader and journalist you are today? It 100% prepared me. Like, so when I was a little kid, I lived in New York until I was six, you know, and right at the age of six, we moved to Baltimore. And I saw the Iron Curtain of Race fall. Like, I did not understand race really in the way that most Americans understand race until I moved to Baltimore because I was in this very sheltered, not just New York, but a sheltered, you know, part of New York on the Upper West Side that was like middle income, multiracial, like literally Francois Clemens, you know, from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood lived in our building, you know, like all that stuff. And so Really, it was moving to Baltimore that made me understand the intersections of race and class and mm-hmm. also being around so many different generations of my family. My mm-hmm. great-grandmother, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, you know, all of the elders, you know, in the community, you know, in our church community. Mm-hmm. And to understand the vision and perseverance of Black communities within structures that didn't always support us was key to me being the journalist I am. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
I have two questions for you. One is, what is a call to action that you might have for our listeners that you would like for them to consider, a question you'd like them to reflect on? I'll give an exercise that a friend gave me Mm -hmm. and that I will do while I'm on vacation. Take a big piece of paper and draw two circles, you know, big one and a smaller one inside. In the small circle, who do you interact with the most often? In the outer circle, people you don't interact with as much who are in your life. Mm. And then draw arrows. Are there people in the inner circle that you need a little less time with? Maybe they are enervating you in a way that's not helpful or whatever. And are there people in the outer ring of the circle that you need to bring in? And I am blessed to have a lot of incredible people in my life, but also sometimes I'm not always good at managing those relationships. And there are times that I drop the ball. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, like, Think about your friendships and your family relationships and even your loving work relationships as a garden. They need a little fertilizer. They need, you know, some of them might need to be trimmed, Mm -hmm. you know. So maybe you have a friend who is not in a particularly helpful phase of your friendship and you could just cut them off entirely. But maybe you don't. You just trim it back, Mm -hmm. you know, calm it down a little bit. Think about tending your friendship and relationship and family garden. That is, that is, I think, really critical. I love that. That's so, so insightful and helpful. And this has been a delight. Is there anything that you wanted to speak to that we didn't touch on? Just, I feel very grateful to be here with you. And you're great at it. So I look forward to more. Thank you. More to come. More to come, my friend. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Say More with Tulane Montgomery so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Say More with Tulane Montgomery is produced by New Profit and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at New Profit, visit newprofit.org. Thank you so much for joining, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.